0: John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid himself from them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning like the Greeks in this passage. And we ask that we wish to see Jesus. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. In his name, amen. So as I've mentioned, this passage, our passage this morning, is perhaps the hinge point in John's gospel. And the reason I say this, and it's something I alluded to two weeks ago, is because in verse 23, Jesus tells us that the hour has come. And if you remember back in chapter four at the wedding in Cana, before his first sign, his first miracle that he ever performed, his mother comes to him and asks him to help. And he says, don't you know, my hour has not yet come. And then throughout the gospel, John records Jesus saying several times, the hour is coming. The hour is coming and is near. And here in chapter 12, Jesus tells us that the hour has come. And in this way, we move from the first part of John's gospel, what we've called the book of signs, right? And these are the book of the miracles, all of the things that Jesus did to show that he is the Christ. And the hour has come and we now enter the second part of the gospel, what I've referred to before, the scholars call the book of glory. But another way that you might think of this is that we're moving from the book of signs, where all these signs that Jesus did, and we're entering now at this hinge, the hour has come, and we enter into the book of the sign. Because the rest of the gospel, the rest of this book is about one sign. It's about Jesus dying and then being resurrected for his people. And so we're moving in that sense, and here in verse 23, we see the turning point. Of John's gospel. The hour has come. John has built up our anticipation. He's led us to this moment. And so we see what's at the center of it. John explicitly tells us what's at the center of this movement. What is the sign? And in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the glory of Jesus Christ is the hinge of this entire book. Jesus' glory is the main sign that John is pointing us to. Yes, he's pointing us to his death and his resurrection, and he's pointing us to Jesus and his glory. And notice how John set it up so we don't miss it. The the statement that this hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified is an answer to a question. And so some Greeks were there worshiping, and they come to Jesus' disciples, to Philip, and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so... This statement then is Jesus' answer. Notice he says Jesus answered them. This is Jesus' answer to the question. We want to see Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, you see that the Son of Man is glorified. What does Jesus look like? What do all the previous signs in this book point us to? What does the final sign point us to? It's pointing us to Jesus Christ glorified. And then, as he so often does, Jesus shows us that his glory is not what we would expect. And so it's just like last week when we talked about how the the gospel is a political gospel, right? We were at the the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and we noticed that that political gospel is not the one that we would have expected. We would have expected God to come in on a war horse prepared for battle and he came in humble and lowly riding on a donkey. And so here... When we look, we, we think, oh, this is the Son of Man. He's going to be glorified. And what we see is probably the exact opposite. The display of his glory is probably the exact opposite of what we would naturally think. Because the rest of this passage this morning, what does it look like for the Son of Man to be glorified? The rest of this passage is about death. The rest of this book is about Jesus' death. So Jesus is glorified in death And because he is glorified in death, he shows us that we too are glorified in death. And so those are our two points this morning, that Jesus is glorified in death and that we are glorified in death. So first, noticing that Jesus is glorified in death, we see that the way Jesus speaks here is not in what you might call plain propositional truth. He's not He's not building a case point by point to explain what he means. Sure, he tells us that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but rather than going through an argument of, well, A, then B, and because B, then C, and because C, then what he does is he stops and he shows us. He gives us an example or an analogy. He teaches us about the grain of wheat, and he uses that to help us understand what he means that he is to be glorified. So in verse 24, After the Son of Man, we see that he has come, the hour has come for him to be glorified. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus tells us here that his glory comes through death. Just like the grain of wheat, Jesus bears fruit because he dies. And this is where it's so contrary to our expectations. And one question I had as I was preparing this passage was how does that happen? How does Jesus' death bring glory? Or what's what's the connection between his death and glory? Because again, this is foreign to me. Apart from what I've learned of following Jesus, apart from his Holy Spirit working in my life, if you were to ask me what it looks like to be glorified, I promise you I wouldn't have given you information about death. Right? Think of it, the last time you said something was glorious or the last time you talked about someone else's glory. What do we talk about? Well, you might talk about beauty. You might talk about goodness. You, might, you talk about things that give life. And yet here, what we see is that Jesus is glorified in death. We don't talk about loss and grief and sadness and sorrow and glory. So how is Jesus' glory then connected to this? How is it connected to death? Well, at one level, I think you and I will spend the rest of eternity. When we meet Jesus face-to-face, we're going to spend the rest of eternity. And part of the time is going to be examining the depths of that truth. How is Jesus glorified in death? But I'm thankful that we do get a glimpse here in this book of what that looks like. And so in verses 27 and 28, we see that Jesus is glorified in death, not by saving himself, but bringing glory to the Father. And so he says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What Jesus is doing is he's he's wrestling with competing tensions. On the one hand, he has a spirit within him that doesn't want to die. He wants salvation. And He's asking himself, should I ask the Father to save me from this hour? But on the other hand, he knows that it is his role and he has come to glorify the Father. And you see, you see the same tension in other gospel accounts, you know, especially usually in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think the, the gospel writer Mark is particularly clear. And when Mark describes a similar scene, Jesus wrestling with this tension of wanting not to die and yet wanting to glorify his Father, Mark uses these words. He says that Jesus is distressed that Jesus is troubled and that Jesus is sorrowful. And in Mark, Jesus even asks the Father if he would remove this cup. But ultimately, he gets to the point where he says, Father, not my will, but what you will. And that's the tension here in John 12. Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? Jesus is weighing his own salvation, in a sense, with the will of the Father. And what is his answer? What does Jesus say instead of asking to be saved from death? Verse 27 and 28 tell us that it is for this purpose that Jesus has come to this hour. Not to save himself, but to glorify the Father. And so... Jesus brings glory to himself and glory to the Father by humbling himself before his Father. It is his humility and his death that ultimately glorifies the Father. As one author put it, Jesus' glorification is tied to his refusal to seek his own glory. It is tied to his commitment always to do what pleases the Father. So Jesus' glory in death is not seeking his own glory, but submitting to the will of the Father. And John goes on to describe at least two implications of this, two implications of Jesus being glorified in death. And namely that when Jesus is glorified in death, it's it's effective. It does things. And also, when Jesus is glorified in his death, it becomes a paradigm for us. So it's effective and it's paradigmatic. What do I mean that Jesus' glory and death is effective? Well, John gives us at least three specific outcomes of Jesus' death here. Look at verses 31 and 32. There, Jesus says to him, Jesus himself says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And so, in glorifying himself, Jesus accomplishes, it's effective for at least three things. He brings the judgment of the world. He cast out the ruler of this world, the ruler of the age, and he draws all people to himself. Now, there's so much, there's so much that we could learn about those three things. But when I ask, what's, what's the common thread for me? Again, the common thread for me is this is not the way that I typically think. If I were to ask you anything close to this, if I were to ask you, what would it look like to be effectively glorified? What would it look like? Or, or to give you even, even more, uh, to put a point on it, to give you a situation where I'm going to need you to do something like what Jesus does here. I'm going to need you to judge maybe a conflict. And when you judge that conflict, I'm going to need you to cast out wrong. You know, do away with wrong in that conflict. And then, in addition to that, I'm going to need you to bring unity to that conflict. Now, as I think about it, I think all of us in the last nine months have had the opportunity to be involved in conflict. Our whole society is in a massive conflict right now. And so if I were to ask you to do these things, if I ask myself how would I do that, I can think of about a thousand things that I feel like I need to do. How would it it look like for me to be effective in that situation? Well, I might plan and I might research and I might talk to people and I might do all these things and then assert my will and assert my opinion and then try to, to do what's right. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus has done. Jesus accomplished all of this and more in his death. Left to ourselves and without the work of the Holy Spirit... I think we believe that effectiveness comes through our life. It comes through the goodness that we bring and not through death. But Jesus accomplished the very judgment of the world, casting out of the ruler of this age and drawing all people to himself through a humble, sacrificial death. And in doing so, Jesus has given us an example to follow. So that is, not only is Jesus' death effective, but it also becomes the paradigm for us. It's paradigmatic. And that's our second point this morning, that just as Jesus is glorified in death, we too are glorified in death. Our path must be like his. Notice verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. So if we want to follow Jesus... If we want to die to ourselves, if we want to be like Him, if we want to serve Him, we must follow Him. And so how do we do that? How how do we follow Him? Well, we follow Him by dying to ourselves. We follow Him just like He was glorified in death. We die to ourselves. So how do we die to ourselves and what happens when we die to ourselves? Well, I think the clearest answer to how we die to ourselves in this passage comes in verse 25. And Jesus says that whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So dying to ourself, following Jesus, involves not loving our life, but hating it. Again, I'm struck by how odd and strange this sounds to me. And I think it's hard for us to understand what does it mean to hate our life? In this world, well, I don't think what Jesus is talking about is—he doesn't mean hating ourselves. Jesus is not saying that we have to hate ourselves. Just like He's saying we don't have to hate the way the world that the Lord created. Now, there's oftentimes the Bible tells us that uh, God, we are to give God thanks for His many blessings, and we give them thanks for the good things that He has created in this world. And so what, is it, what does it mean if we're to hate our life in this world? And we're not to hate ourselves, and we're not to hate the good things of the world. Well, I think what he's getting at, what Jesus is pointing out, is that we have to, uh, what, what he's really pressing us to do is order our loves. The call to follow Jesus is a call to laying down our life and ordering our loves just as he laid down his own life. Remember that tension, right? Jesus is... is has experiences his attention of wanting to live and yet wanting to glorify the Father, and he has to order those two loves. So just as Jesus submitted his own will to the will of the Father, we too are called to submit ourselves to him, to forsake or hate anything that would place ourselves over the Lord or place even place ourselves over another person. So what does this look like? What does it look like to hate our own lives in the world and to have properly ordered loves. Well, thankfully scripture gives us many examples. The first one I think of is the golden rule in Matthew 7. There Jesus tells us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Hating our lives then involves intentionally treating people the way we wanna be treated. You find a similar sentiment in Philippians chapter three. And there, Paul tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And there, in Philippians, what we learn is not only about our actions, what we do to others, but dying to self also involves our intentions and our estimations. Not only do we have to act well towards others, we need to die to our conceptions of ourselves, counting others more significant than us. And in addition to these general ex- exhortations, other portions of Scripture gives us, give us particular ways that we can do it or particular examples to show how we can lay down our lives for, for each other. And so one I'm reminded of frequently is uh, marriage. This is something uh, a principle that we have to carry into our marriage. And if you're not married, you can really just you can apply it to all relationships. Because in all of our relationships, I think we are prone in ourselves to place our needs over the needs of others. And the surprising thing for me is that you wouldn't think it would be as hard in marriage. Right, when I committed myself to my wife, Corey, and I said, I wanna spend the rest of my life with this person, you would think that person would be the easiest one for me to submit my own inclinations and my own desires to. And It's just not. Because in all of our relationships, we are tempted. We have a, a couple who is engaged to be married, and they are giggling. And so maybe this is, is impromptu marriage advice, is what this is. But it's an, this happens this way in all of our relationships. We are always prone to place ourselves above others. And this is why Paul's instructions to specifically to husbands and wife is always a call to lay down our lives. Lay down our selfish desires for the sake of others. Consider just just Paul's words in Ephesians 5. And there, Paul calls wives to submit themselves to their husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, he calls, to love your wife as Christ loved the church, giving yourself up for her. Notice that both of these calls are a mutual mortification of self dying to ourself for the benefit of the other. It's an ordering of our, lo- our loves. And it's difficult, and it's difficult even in the most valuable and the most precious of our relationships. So if ordering our loves is difficult, and if dying to ourselves is difficult, how do we do it? How do we learn to live so that we don't love our life? Well, more than anything, I think that this is something that God does to us. Yes, there's something called sanctified effort. We have effort in our sanctification. But I think God primarily reshapes and restructures our loves through His work, and He does it through suffering. Because think about it, right? If God ordains a cross for you, if He ordains a trial for you or for me to suffer through, and we love our life in this world, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to be tempted to be bitter. Or resentful or critical or angry, or a host of other things, and we're, we're going to be tempted to be mad at God for it. But if suffering comes and we let go of our life, we let go of our love of life in this world, and if we've learned to look to Jesus whose suffering, or excuse me, whose glory came through death. We look to him and we pattern our own life after that. And we let go of a dream of a perfect life. We die with Christ. Then what happens is he is formed in us. His life is formed in us and we become like him. And that gives us hope, and joy, and patience, and peace, and kindness, and goodness, and self-control. And then the amazing thing is that what happens is that actually turns out to be the happy life. That turns out to be the good life. It's not the one we were holding on to. It's not the one where we were on top. It's the one where we follow through suffering and obedience to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. His quote's so good, and we love Lewis around here that I'm gonna read the whole thing. (laughs) Lewis says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. This is laying down our life. This is how we are glorified through our death. And so the last question for us this morning is, where does the motivation come from to do this? Where do we find the power to hate our lives in this world and to die to ourself? Well, we find it in the light of the world. Notice how our passage ends in verses 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer Jesus says, "While walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light." Ultimately, the only way to die to ourselves, the only way to reorder our loves for us to be glorified in death is through believing in Jesus Christ believing in the light, looking to the one who was first glorified in his death, the one who endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he did so because of the joy set before him. And so imagine, think about what his motivation is. What was Jesus' motivation for doing so? Well, both for the joy set before him, but, but John also gives us another clue a little bit later In chapter 13, in chapter 13, verse 1, he's talking about this same thing. He says, Jesus knew that his hour had come, right? That's what we've been talking about. This is Jesus' hour, that the Son of Man may be glorified. Why? What was his motivation? Well, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so Jesus Christ, who set aside his own glory for the glory of the Father, did so because he loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. That is the motivation for death to self. That is the good news. And when he does, when we see his love, when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to experience it and know it, it transforms us. When we believe in him, we are transformed from the the kingdom of dark and into the kingdom of light, and we become children of light. Would the Lord give us that grace to know that and to rest in that this morning. Let's pray in his name. Lord, we confess.